Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time with family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, for, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Say that collectively like no one, you know, you know that's between you and the Lord. Um, but I, I do hope that... Um, we're not just here as the last thing to do on our checklist for Thursday night. Uh, I do hope that we're not just here, you know, some of us maybe, oh, we just barely made it. Well, you know, it was just that kind of a day. And, hey, we all, we all have those days. Um, but, you know, we're never going to get this chance again uh, on this day during this time to, to, to be in the Word and to hear what He has for us. And, and so... Um, I do hope, not for my sake, it's not about me at all, um, but I do hope that we are, are uh, really just coming to this time in this book with, with, with a heart that is hungry and that is yearning. So, so I'm going to pray for us, and, and then we'll jump in. Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. Uh, God, we thank you for, um, God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these people, my brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, I thank you for... Uh, the cross, uh, Lord, for the blood that was shed. I thank you for um, the word of God. God, thank you for your spirit. And Lord, this evening as we have this time, uh, Father, I do pray that, uh, Lord, you would open our eyes, that we might truly behold wondrous things out of thy law. And God, I pray that as we behold those things, uh, regardless of who's speaking or you know who's up here or whatever, God, I pray that we would Lord, come to treasure those things and that we would come to hide them in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, I pray if there's any, anyone here this evening or anyone that's, that's watching with us online that, again, is just, just kind of going through the motions, Lord, I, I pray first and foremost, God, that you would reveal that to us, that we would be honest enough with you and honest enough with ourselves. And secondly, God, I pray that once we get to that point of honesty, and, and if we're guilty of that, God, I pray that uh, we would be willing and open to the working of the Spirit of God, Lord, to bring conviction, to bring change, Lord, to, to, to bring um, um, fresh 
um, vitality, Lord, to that relationship. God, we live in a day where um, mediocrity is the goal. So in, in Laodicea, spiritually speaking, Lord. And God, I pray that we, though, though we teach on that and preach against that, Lord, we are not immune to it. I think, um, I think we're guilty of it. So God, I just pray for a move of your spirit this evening. God, that, that our minds and our hearts would be engaged, uh, not with me, uh, Lord, but, but with your spirit and with your word. And God, that you would bring glory to your name, that our heart would truly desire, Lord, and, and know and sing and, and, and live uh, not to us, O oh God, but to your name be glory. So Lord, lead us this evening in Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so, um, okay. So a few weeks ago, uh, I think it was back when we were uh, on Zoom even, a few weeks ago, uh, I, I posed a problem to you, so to speak. I say problem in that when we study this thing of church history, um, I keep promising you and I keep telling you and we keep rallying around this idea that we will not have to leave the word of God for our study of church history. And, and, and we won't. Um, but when you start to really think about that, and maybe you remember this, maybe you won't, it was a while ago, and that's okay. But when you really start to think about that, you start thinking, well, okay, if we're, we're not going to leave the Bible for our study of church history, okay, so, and we're not going to have to, really, the book of Acts, he keeps telling us, is the foundation. Okay, well, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, right? So, and the book of Acts takes us barely just past the first century, not even. And here we are in the 21st century. How in the world can we not leave the Bible? And, and I, I answered that for us uh, back on those glorious days of Zoom. And uh, I, I took you to the book of Revelation. And though the book of Acts, as I think I said a week or two ago, though the book of Acts will be and is our foundation, the book of Revelation will be our structure. And specifically, and I want you to turn there, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. I wanted to kind of just do a, a quick review with you real quick. Um, because the answer to that problem is the mystery, as Revelation 1.20 calls it, the mystery of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And so when you look at Revelation chapter 1, uh, really I want to take you straight, first and foremost, to verse 10. And if you notice in verse 10 how God, like he always does, when, when setting the context, he gives us the landmarks. He gives us the landmarks of where we are and what's going on. And Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 does that for us because John is saying that he is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And it is in that context that, that he is, is, is writing and experiencing all these things. Okay, and so what he's saying in verse 10 is that when he writes the book, the Spirit of God has translated him forward in time to the time of the second coming or the day of the Lord, essentially. And this is very important 
because he's writing this book from the standpoint of a man who is way out, I'm not going to say way out there, I'm going to say way out here because we're, we're so close to that time. Uh, he, he's writing from the standpoint of someone who's out here in these last days around the time of the rapture of the church. And it's super important that we get that, uh, especially when you come to verse 19, um, because it's from that standpoint of verse 10 in verse 19 that he says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So we have three different time or benchmarks, if you will, in our timeline. Uh, so in verse 19, God tells John to write about the past, the present, and the future. And, and what that would have meant from verse 10, from the standpoint of uh, the, being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, is uh, chapters 1 through 3 would have been those things which John, as verse 19 says, has seen, or the things which from the standpoint of the Lord's day were in the past, specifically the events of the church age all the way to the rapture of the church. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3 alone, by the way, he uses the word church seven times, uh, and uh, excuse me, church seven times, and church is another 12 times. But what's interesting is that after Revelation 4.1, and again, we covered a lot of this earlier. I'm, I'm just going to hit some of these points just so we're kind of refreshed on this. When it comes to Revelation 4.1, you don't see the church on earth again because it's gone and, and until it comes back out of heaven in chapter 19 with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have chapters 1 through 3, that which has been or which that John has seen. And then chapters 4 through 19 are the things which are, uh, from the standpoint of the day of the Lord, thus the, 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 um, excuse me, the tribulation to the second coming. And then um, when you get to chapters uh, 20 through 22, and that is the things which shall be. Or again, from the standpoint of the day of the Lord, the millennium and on into eternity. Okay, And so just to kind of give us that, that understanding, from that standpoint of the day of the Lord, he's writing about the past, the church age, uh, the tribulation and the second coming is like beneath him, if you will, and then the millennium and eternity future is something into the future. So verses 10 and 19 of Revelation 1 let you know where you are in the scheme of things. Okay, it lets you know if the rapture is in chapter 4 and verse 1, where John, a picture of the church is, is, is taken, heaven is opened, and he's taken up, he's translated, then, then chapters 2 and 3 cover that period of the church age. And it's something more than just seven churches at one point in history, but we'll unpack this in just a moment, a little bit more detail, but it really shakes out to be seven periods of church history from the first century where the book of Acts leaves off, all the way until the rapture of the church, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Okay, so if you had your notes this evening, this is when I would direct you to your notes. But you don't, so I'll direct you to the screen or, or, or however you want to do that. But, uh, so if you're in Revelation 1, flip over to um, chapter 2 because we're going to get there in just a moment. Um, but I want to unpack this thing of the, the seven churches for just a moment. And before we do that... Um, as I told you, we're going to be talking about Satan's strategies and Satan's patterns this evening. Uh, but I'm just trying to rebuild this for us before we do that. Um, this is a group of people that, that understand, that, that I think believe and get, that every passage of the Bible has three different and specific and succinct applications. It has a historical application, 
Uh, it has, number two, an inspirational or devotional application. And number three, it has a doctrinal or prophetic application. And, and we're not just kind of pulling that, you know, out of our magic hat, right? Um, every verse in the Bible happened historically, as it says, it was real. And, and then every verse in the Bible can apply to us from an inspirational standpoint uh, because every word of God has been preserved for us. And, and, and so that can be applied devotionally to us. Um, but there's another piece, uh, the doctrinal or prophetic, where God is actually teaching us something. And, and we see that all over. You just go to Genesis 22, where Abraham and is taking his son Isaac up to the mountain, and that was historical, yes. And there's so much we can learn uh, devotionally or inspirationally. But he, he's teaching us, uh, he, he's prophesying, so to speak. He's telling us of a time to come when the father will lead his son up on a cross to be crucified and sacrificed. And, and so we see in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10, um, our, our friend Paul, he, he's going through in chapter 10. There, actually, turn there. I want to show you. I didn't put these up there. I just want to show this to you. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. I know I just told you to go to Revelation 2, but just hang with me for a moment. Uh, look there in verse 1. Uh, we're going to just read these first, maybe 10, 11 verses or so, and see the, the, uh, the doctrinal, the inspirational, and the historic application. Watch this. So I'm going to read through these, and I'll just kind of maybe throw this out there at you so you can see these different applications. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So right there, there's a historical application. Okay, That really happened in history. Verse 2, and we're all baptized unto Moses. That is a doctrinal application there. That is a doctrinal teaching. God was doing something to teach of something to come. Baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat. There's another doctrinal application. Verse 4, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. That's a doctrinal application of scripture. For they drank of what? That spiritual rock. What is that? That's Christ. That's a doctrinal application. That's prophetic. That spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so all that was doctrinal. Verse 5, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Well, that's historical. Now, these things, verse 6, were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil. There's your inspirational or your uh, devotional application, how that applies to us. As they also lusted. That's historical. Verse 7, neither be ye idolaters. There's uh, the devotional that's applying to us. As were some of them. Historical, right? Um, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Again, historical. Verse 8, neither let us commit fornication. Devotional. As some of them that committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. That is historical. So, so you see what's going on here, and it can go on and on, all the way down to verse 11. Now, all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, devotional, upon whom the ends of the world are come, doctrinal. Okay, and so I just wanted to illustrate that for you for a moment. All over the place, we can see the historical, the inspirational or devotional, and the 
doctrinal or prophetic application, all right? And, and it's all over, okay? Um, so we're not just pulling that out of our hat there. Um, and so we, we have to get that as we go into Revelation 2 and 3, okay? And so if we're going to plug these three applications into the seven churches, don't lose sight that these seven letters, historically, were written to seven real churches in Asia Minor. And I didn't include all this stuff, like, in your notes to fill blanks. And I think I just kind of left it there for you to jot down what you want or need or whatever. Um, just going that route for you tonight. But, but these were seven real letters written to seven real churches in Asia Minor around 90 AD. And they addressed the real needs and real situations in those churches. A very historical application. Number two... Inspirationally, we can say, without violating biblical boundaries whatsoever, that these churches do represent types of churches that exist today and really have existed since the church age began. You can go through each of those seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 and see characteristics of commendations and condemnations that are present in, in many churches today. So there's a very real devotional application, all right? And, and most uh, pastors, uh, Bible believers, students of the Bible, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll stop there, right? But, but if there's one that's more important than the other, if there is, I, I would say, if, that's an if, but I would say it would have to be this one, uh, the, the doctrinal application. And w the way this shakes out is... And, Again, I think we've gotten this before, but I just want to remind you of it. These seven letters uh, to the seven churches represent seven periods of church history. And what God is doing is he is laying out for us the progression of what is going to take place throughout the church age. And, and we can say that with the utmost confidence. It takes faith to believe that. But really, we can say that with the utmost confidence because we are in a very privileged position Standing in this time in history, being able to look back as history bears record of these things and see how they have lined up and shaken out every which way that the Bible said. It's just, it's just an amazing thing. And so um, I, I also, while I'm reminding you of things, I want to remind you of the importance of seeing the doctrinal application, why this is so important, why we're going to hang on this. Uh, we could spend a whole series on the historical part. We could spend a whole series on the um, inspirational, devotional part. But we're going to spend this series because this is what God, these are once you peel back those layers, right? You know, um, didn't Shrek say he, was, he had layers? Ogres have layers? They're like onions, right? This Bible has more layers than any ogre you might know. And so when you start to peel that back, man, it's amazing what, what God does. And you can't come to this book and walk away thinking it was just a, a normal book because it's not. Because if you don't see the doctrinal application, then you're going to be left, as Proverbs 23.10 warns us, in the fields of the fatherless. Okay, and again... There is nothing in Proverbs, actually it's also Proverbs 22, both chapters it says that, but there's nothing in Proverbs 22 and Proverbs or Proverbs 23 that tells us right out in black and white, the fields of the fatherless is Gentile history and, and that landmark is the Jew. Like it just doesn't say that in black and white. Okay, so don't go looking for that. But lest you think I'm, again, just pulling that out of somewhere. No, from a doctrinal standpoint... 
all through history, you can see these things bear out of how uh, God has, has kept his eye on the Jew and how, what has happened to Gentile nations that have not. And, and from a doctrinal standpoint, that the teaching is very clear that we get lost where we think in the church age today that we are at one point when we're really at a completely different point. And so if you're, I would liken it to this. If you're in a race, for instance, um, you're, you're running an Olympic race and you think it's uh, the, the third or fourth lap out of eight laps, you're going to perform a lot more, a lot differently than if you realize it's the eighth lap out of eight laps. If, if you, your position will determine your action. And for us today, if we think that all the promises of the Bible that God has given to the Jew are for us now, or if we think that the rapture of the, that we're maybe in the Philadelphia, if we believe in these church ages, and maybe we're in the Philadelphian church age, which I've heard, um, I know, I've heard Bible, self-professed Bible believers tell me this, uh, that they really believe we're in the Philadelphian church age um, I don't know what to say, because that's just not the case. <laughs> but, but here's the point. Uh, not only do we get lost in the fields of the fatherless, but number two, we become dependent. And this is so, so bad, but it happens all the time. We become dependent upon men, upon people to discern history for us. We need the scholars. We need the theologians. We need the, those PhDs or those... Um, you know, MDivs and, and all those. We need uh, the, the church historians. We need the priests. We need the, the, the church followers in the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses to tell us what the Bible really means. Like, we need the people in the, the Mormon, you know, hierarchy. We need those people to, to really tell us what the Bible really says because that is for those people that have gotten the degrees or gone through the, the hoops or, or whatever else. No, y'all don't need me to teach this to you because God has given it to you just as much as he's given it to any, anyone in his word, okay? And then the, the, consequently, the third step is that if we don't see the doctrinal application is that we become, or excuse me, they, those men, those people become the standard as opposed to the word of God, a, a church, a denomination, a pastor, a theologian, uh, fill in the blank. That becomes the standard. And I don't know if you remember, but I think it was back on Zoom days. I, I had shown you some of the books that I used, uh, that I was required to use when I was in, in um, seminary. And um, if, if, you, if you're going through seminary, uh, you, you get people like Philip Schaff, I believe his name is, who... Is the uh, church history father or the church historian father, and, and and we'll talk about him later on, and just the things that these guys believe, and they're teaching us, and it's just it, it, it's spiritual, and 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 it's it sounds Christian, but it's not biblical, and it's not scriptural, and so we're going to stick to this book, we're going to stick to what God has shown us because He has shown it to us. And so what I want to do is um, just give you a flyover of these seven churches 
Um, I think I put those there in your notes uh, of where, uh, where you can see them, uh, what reference they are in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, I'm, I'm going to put up here for you so you can f- kind of see the approximate dates of how these things shake out and what these church names mean. So that way, as we're going through each one, uh, you'll kind of have a road map as to where we are and where we're going and where we've been. And so when you look at these churches, these are the orders in which the Lord Jesus Christ lays them out in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. He, he, he first... Uh, rise to the, uh, the church at Ephesus there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And from a doctrinal standpoint, what we're going to find out is that covers a period of a, approximately, and all these dates that you're going to see are approximate, of 90 AD to 200 AD. And the name Ephesus means fully purpose. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm hoping a lot of this stuff is screaming at you uh, back when we went through Revelation with Pastor Frank and and. In different venues, you know, we've talked about some of these things. Um, the, the Church of Smyrna in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, uh, what we'll see is those cover a date or a time frame of approximately 200 A.D. to 325 A.D. Um, uh, that's where we'll see the Council of Nicaea uh, come about, uh, and that means bitterness and death. Um, Smyrna, where we get the word myrrh, um, very bitter, uh, number three, the chur- third church is the church at Pergamos. There in verses 12 through 17. And what we'll see is that covers a time frame of 325 to 500 AD, uh, which really is the start of the Dark Ages. Uh, and that uh, Pergamos means much marriage. And in that time frame, um, there was much marriage going on. And it wasn't husbands and wives getting married and going on honeymoons and all that stuff. It was a very different kind of marriage. Um, Thyatira, we see that in Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Uh, that covers another 500 years from 500 A.D. to 1000 A.D. Uh, and that name, Thyatira, means odor of affliction. And then you come to the church of Sardis in chapter 3, in those first six verses there. Uh, That covers, again, another approximate 500 years up until 1500 A.D., uh, and that name meaning red ones. And then the church in Philadelphia in verses 7 through 13 of chapter 3, from about 1500 to 1900 A.D., and that means, uh, of course, brotherly love. And and then uh, where we are today in in Laodicea, uh, from a church-age doctrinal standpoint, There at the end of chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, that covers from approximately 1900 A.D. to the rapture of the church. Uh, And, and of course, Laodicea, as we well know, uh, means civil rights or the rights of the people. And, you know, seven times for each of these seven churches, seven times in chapters 2 and 3, God says the same thing. I've got a message to the churches. I've got a message to the churches. Look in verse 7, chapter 2 and verse 7. It's the last verse of each one of those that I listed there for you. In 2.7, 2.11, he's telling them, I've got a message for the churches. And that's why I'm praying tonight. That's why I'm praying that we listen with hearts that are open. 
And so I want to talk to you, as I promised in the beginning, uh, so with that in mind, I kind of wanted to kind of get that under, under our belt, so to speak. And, and I want to talk about, uh, as we go into church history, for this week and next week, uh, Satan's patterns, uh, Satan's strategy, okay? And this is going to become very important for us because we've spent a lot of time unpacking this truth, this reality, that Satan is in the business of countering and counterfeiting and confounding everything that God is doing, okay? And so if the Lord Jesus Christ has a church, and he does, of which we are a part, Satan will find a way to counterfeit that church, okay? It, it, it was uh, somewhat through through the, this, this church age that we're going to be studying, church history, that, that man Satan was, was just trying to beat God, beat his plan, beat God's people, all this, and he just realized that's not working. So he changed his MO and he started to essentially join with a counterfeit church. Okay? And I want to direct your attention, if you're not there, uh, to Revelation chapter 2, because I want to show you how his uh, counterfeit church or how his strategy unfolds. Because as I said, God lays it out there for us in black and white in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, look with me in verse uh, 9. I was more asking than telling. Yeah, verse 9. The first thing we see is Satan gets a synagogue there in Revelation 2.9. Watch this. <clears throat> this is to the church um, of Smyrna in verse 8. And Jesus, Jesus is saying in verse 9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Okay, now it's important that we understand, all right, there's, there's not a building in a physical geographic location that says the synagogue of Satan that you can actually go to. Like, like that's not what he's talking about, right? Uh, if we didn't get that, let's make sure we get that. Uh, this is uh, a, a, a spiritual synagogue, uh, but it is a very real and physical entity. Um, it, it, it is a system. It is probably the better way to explain it. And it is a synagogue, Jesus calls it, of Satan. But it is not propagated, it is not advertised as a synagogue of Satan, of course, because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So number two, after he gets a synagogue, look there in verse 13, he then has a seat in the synagogue. Look at the first part of chapter 2, verse 13. He's talking to the church at Pergamos. And he says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. So, so Satan, according to what God is telling us, he gets a synagogue and, and in verse 9. And then in verse 13, he has a seat in the synagogue. And then keep reading in verse 13, because the next thing we know, Satan is dwelling in it. Keep reading. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And so Satan gets a synagogue, 
He gets a seat. He takes uh, the seat. He dwells there. And then if you look in chapter 2 and verse 24, it is from that seat that Satan fills it, the synagogue, with his doctrine. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 24 but unto you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. And, and we, we have to get that progression. Because it was a very subtle, and, and quite honestly, really probably a stroke of genius, what he has done. And we are still contending with that today. We are still duped, friends. We are duped. I say we as the, the, the church of Christ, as Christians, as blood-bought believers, I don't, I don't know that we are in this room because I know we've been taught and trained in, in the word of God. Uh, but we as the church have been duped, man, into believing the propaganda that, that has the name Jesus on it, but it's not from Jesus. It's not from God. It's from the God of this world. And, and so, again, I, I want you to see that overview of the, the seven churches, number one. I want you to see, number two, the, the applications of Scripture as we go into chapters two and three. Um, but then I also want you to see what Satan has done to counterfeit, okay? And now, for the, the rest of your notes, um, and, and I hope I left you no space. You know, we're not almost done, but we're getting there. Um, I want to show you from a historical standpoint j just a few examples of, of what Satan has been doing in Gentile history, and so as we go through these things, uh, some of this I'll throw up there, um, some of it's not. And so you, again, you discern how you want to take notes if you do or whatever. Maybe you just want to listen. It's all good. But, but I do hope you have your Bibles because we're going to be flipping through a few places here. Uh, but before we do that, I, I need you to know, and write this down if you think you're going to forget it, but you need to know that Satan has always been in control of Gentile nations. Okay? Now, we are a Gentile nation. Okay. Now that does not mean we all serve Satan. I get that. All right, but he is the god of this world. Satan is little G, and I want you to notice Satan's pattern because it is a pattern, as we will see in a few moments. In using Gentile nations, he is using, has, and is using Gentile nations in pre in preparation uh, for the nation of Israel and to come against God's plan and His work in and through them. And so I'm going to take you back all the way to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, get there, watch this, uh, again, jot some of these things down um, as you will or want or desire. But Genesis 12, 1 through 4, the, now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. 
So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And so right here, God comes to Abram, or to Abraham, and he, God has promised a land, a nation, to Abraham. And not just a land or a nation, but a nation that would come out of his loins. And so what God is doing is he's working his plan, y'all. He's already working his plan. Now, now, we know from eternity past, I mean, he's been working the plan. But as far as this, this chosen people, he's working a plan. And don't think for a second that Satan is missing any of this. Anytime God speaks to man, anytime God's doing something, don't forget that Satan is there, man. Don't think he's missing it. And, and, and don't think that, that all of this unfolded uh, in just a short time, in the time frame it takes to read these chapters. Like, this unfolding took quite a while, and, and Abraham begins to get impatient. Okay? He's old. She's, as the Bible says, past the manner of women. And... and, and Abraham tells Sarah, hey, God spoke to me today and said we're going to have babies. And, and so she's like, and they believed it, but Satan believed it. Um, but they get impatient. And so look at chapter 15 and verse 13, um, Genesis 15, 13. And he said to Abram, so, so God, what he's doing here is he is reassuring Abraham. You know, we need God's reassurance often because we just whether it's lack of faith or obedience or, or, or whatever it might be. But he says, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. And so God is giving Abram a little more information here. okay? But he's also uh, reaffirming the promise. And at this point, Abraham still hasn't had a seed yet. Okay? Um, but God tells him that he, that God will form this nation over a period, as Genesis 15, 13 tells us, over a period of 400 years. And he'll do it while they are in a land that is not their land, serving in a nation that is not their nation. Uh, this is Egypt. And, and God promised it, and Abraham believed it. And guess who else believed it? Satan. And so during that 400 years, while Israel is in Egypt, God's getting his people ready, okay? God's not sleeping on the job. He's getting his people ready. And what do you think Satan is doing? Think about this for a second. He knows the promise of Genesis 3.15. He knows the promise of Genesis 12.1-4. He knows the promise of Genesis 15.13. So all the while, Satan is on, just on the other side. He, he's right there, and he's working his plan. And what he's doing is Satan is raising up Gentile nations to come against the work and the people and the plan of God. I'll show that to you in just a moment. For when, whenever it happens, after that 400 years, when that happens, Satan is going to be ready with his pieces in place to come against God's plan when they finally, when God's people finally get in the land. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 13. Look at verse 27. 
Numbers 13, starting in verse 27. So, so once we start reading this, you're probably familiar with it. Uh, Moses sends uh, 12 spies to, to over to the land that they haven't inhabited yet uh, to scope it out, one from each tribe. And, and this is the account of what happens there in Numbers 13. Look again at verse 27. And they told him and said, so they came back for the report. We came into the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit there, uh, of it. Yeah, Moses, is everything God said it would be. Nevertheless, the people be strong. Have we talked about strong people before? That dwell in the land, and the cities, they're walled, and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. That's important. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, all these different groups, all these Gentile nations, they're dwelling in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we are we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. Th these men aren't awesome. These are giant men. Very tall broad men verse 33 and there we saw the giants remember anik who are the giants the sons of anik which came of the giants and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers and so we were in their sight let me ask you a question do you think those giants those walled cities, those powerful nations just happen to be sitting there? They just kind of got there, just a quinky dink. God's moving, Satan knows it, and all the while Satan is working to come against it when God's people get in the land. Satan knew ahead of time, anticipating God's move, coming against God's plan. And when Israel comes out of Egypt and they get to the land, that they have to fight all those nations, right? That's what you see. Joshua 12, 7 and 8 lay that out. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And all those nations are there because for 400 years, Satan has been developing those Gentile nations to come against God's people when they would eventually come into the land. And you know, that is not a one-time instance. That becomes a pattern because over in Daniel chapter 2, uh, we meet a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is, is the king of Babylon. Uh, Babylon uh, was the, uh, the nation uh, which Israel fell into captivity uh, due to their disobedience and their uh, faithlessness and unfaithfulness and, and all that. And so in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And no one can interpret the dream uh, but Daniel. 
And his dream, uh, as you may know, is, is about uh, an incredible image. And I think I, I put this up here in case you want to just jot this down quickly. You may already know it. I don't know. Uh, but this image has a head of gold, uh, and it has breasts and arms of silver. Uh, it has a belly and thighs of brass, and it has legs of iron. Are you okay? Oh, okay. You allergic to my preaching? Ah, happens every week. Okay. And so he sees this image, Nebuchadnezzar does. He explains it to Daniel. Daniel's able to interpret it. And what it shakes out to be is that the dream is all about Gentile nations that will come to power when Israel goes into captivity. All right? And so that head of gold ends up being the Babylonian Empire. Uh, the, the, the breast and arms of silver ends up being the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the belly and thighs of brass shake out to be the Grecian Empire. And the legs of iron are the Roman, or is the Roman Empire. Okay, so, so there's that. All right, so, so grab that. And then fast forward to Daniel 7, where now Daniel has a dream. And in this dream, there are four beasts. Uh, and really, this dream is about those same Gentile nations. Uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God is laying out the course of those nations. In Daniel's dream, God is laying the character of those nations. And so Daniel dreams about a lion, and that lion represents the Babylonian Empire. He dreams about a bear. That bear represents, and I'm just kind of going in order of how I had them here. So maybe if you have this down, you can just write like Daniel 7, lion, you know, bear, however you want to do that if you're doing that. Uh, is the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, and then he, he sees a, in his dream a leopard with four heads, of all things. And that represents the Grecian Empire uh, with the four generals who divided up the nations of Alexander the Great. And then this, this other beast, it, it's like nothing he's ever seen before. Has teeth of iron, the Bible says. It describes it as dreadful, terrible, strong, exceedingly. Uh, has ten horns. And, and man, it annihilated anything in its way. And it was none other than the Roman Empire. Okay. So grab that, or what you can of that. All right. I think, are we, together? Are we okay? We're good? So when Israel goes into captivity, these are the nations... That become the world powers. Uh, so you keep reading through the Old Testament and you get to Malachi, all right? And, and then you get to Matthew. And, and notice between the time you get to the end of Malachi, you flip that blank space, that page, and you get to Matthew 1, that's another 400 years, okay? And so in that time, God, I mean, he doesn't say a word. He offers no new revelation, uh, no, no prophets, no thus saith the Lord. The only revelation that they have of God is what he has previously given already. Okay, so there's another 400-year period, just like the 400 years when Israel was in Egyptian captivity, where, again, Satan is working to confound the plan of God. And he's, so he's found this space to work with of 400 years, and he's doing the same thing through the same Gentile nations um, and others, mind you. But he, his goal is to get them, to, again, to come against God's plan. And what Satan was doing, friends, in that 400-year time period 
completely rocked the world to the point that we have yet to get over it. During that time, Satan was putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and today we are sitting here uh, contending with the very things that he began to propagate in that time period. Okay, so, so let me unpack that for you. Um, there were great military powers during that time, okay? Uh, do know that it was Satan who assembled the Roman military, who, who would later just come against and blast God's people. And when Matthew begins, Israel is already under that iron heel of Rome, okay? Uh, they're cold, they're heartless, and when Jesus establishes his church, Rome is still in power. And man, they're annihilating, they're beating, they're killing Christians. We spent time last week, I think, talking about when you see Rome all through, through, through the Gospels and through the New Testament, um, they're always coming against God's plan and God's people, it's just out there in his word right there for you. And by the way, that thing with Rome continues through church history, we'll see, um, in weeks and months to come. But listen, as damaging as Rome was to the cause of Christ, its damage was not to be equaled to the damage done by the Grecians when they would come to power. Because what, Ro what the Roman Empire was militarily and physically, the Greek empire was philosophically and intellectually. And we are still dealing with the influence of the Greeks in the 21st century today. And so you see Rome coming to power around 100 BC. Um, and man, the Greeks, again, militarily, they were nothing compared to Rome. Because Rome, man, as strong and as powerful as they were, they still wanted that wisdom and that intelligence of the Greeks. That's why you see in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, the wisdom of the Greeks over and over again. Look at chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, for example. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and then to the Greeks, what is it? It's foolishness. So just real quick, to, it, it, the cru Christ crucified is to the Jews a stumbling block because the Old Testament law says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And Christ hung on a tree, if you will. He hung, Galatians calls the cross a tree. And so how can God bring deliverance and the Messiah through a cursed death? Okay, so, so, so that was a stumbling block for them. But to the Greeks, it was foolishness. Intellectually, the gospel, man, it just doesn't line up. So during that 400-year period of time, and I'm not saying that as, I'm not preaching that. I'm, that's that's the, the mindset there. So during that 400-year period of time when Israel was captive in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, Satan was working through philosophy. And this is where, as I mentioned, um, I think it was last week, uh, Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates came from. And what Satan does and what he's wanting is to use philosophy mingled with Christianity to confound God's plan all through the centuries. And the Greeks look at the wisdom of God and they mock it. And I'm not just talking about the nation of Greece and like that's it. Like 
that, that philosophical mindset that has infiltrated and permeated the minds of people all over. And, and today the world still does that. Have you ever tried talking to an intellectual about the gospel? I remember um, several years back, uh, I was on a mission trip to New York City, and uh, we, were, we were with a group uh, not far from NYU. And, um, well, I was, uh, me and this, this, this girl, we were talking to two students from NYU. They were great guys, young guys, you know, very friendly, very talkative, and we started talk, sharing the gospel with them, and, and they weren't belligerent, they weren't ugly or anything, and they heard us out, and we heard them out. It was a great conversation. But man, the intellectual and philosophical um, arguments or, or, or objections that they had, you can just see it all over the place. That, that, that teaching, that philosophical teaching that has infiltrated the education system and even the church, really, uh, it, man, it's a force to be reckoned with. It really, really is. But see, the Greeks, as I said a second ago, they didn't just have the influence of the mind of the unsaved world. It goes even further than that because this Greek philosophical mindset found its way into the early church as well. And there was this school, as I mentioned last week, in Alexandria, Egypt. And a guy by the name of Philo, P-H-I-L-O, who comes along and, and man, he just... He worships those Greek philosophers. Man, he, he just loves them. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. Man, their writings are just, man, they're equal. They're right on par with the, the, uh, the Old Testament scriptures there. You know, Old Testament is pretty cool too, but man, if there's a way, they're both good. If I can just kind of mingle those together, and that's exactly what he does. Is he takes those, those writings of the Greeks and he merges them with Christianity in this school and somehow, I don't know how, maybe someone can tell me, somehow this school becomes a, quote, Christian university. And what's interesting is when you study church history, there's no doubt about this school, that it exists, and Philo who started it, but no one can tell you how it becomes, quote, Christian. So I did a little research um, earlier this week, and, and uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica online, uh, there, excuse me, there is, is a, uh, an entry there uh, for the, um, the school of Alexandria, okay? And I'm, I'm just, it's a quick quote. I'm going to read this to you verbatim. The Encyclop Encyclopedia Britannica will tell you that the school of Alexandria is, quote, the first Christian institution of higher learning. Under its earliest known leaders, among which were Clement, Origen, etc., under its earliest known leaders, it became a leading center of the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica will tell you that. And if you don't know what the allegorical method of interpretation is, it is a very non-literal, uh, philosophical, symbolic, um, me-centered, standard way of interpreting the Bible. It does not allow for Scripture to be compared with Scripture. It does not allow for the Bible to be the standard. Even the Encyclopedia Britannica will tell you that. A leading center of the allegorical method of biblical interpretation and espoused a reconciliation, watch it, between Greek culture and the Christian faith. 
And it goes on to say, opposing the school of Alexandria was the school of Antioch, which emphasized the literal interpretation of the Bible, end quote. Wow. But the scholars, man, they're coming out of that school, origin, and by all accounts, we're going to spend a lot of time on him later on, but by all accounts of church historians, and this is why you can't, there's a bug on my nose, this is why you cannot use men as the standard. Because by all accounts of church history and historians, Origen is hailed a man of God. The men from this school, and he wasn't, by the way, the men of this school, man, in Alexandria, come on, they can be trusted. Those are the scholars. They know their languages, and, and they have those letters behind their names, and they're this and that. And what was happening is that these are the very men who were influenced by the wisdom and philosophy and intellectualism of the Greeks. And honestly, it's not much different in Christianity today, friend. Why do we have, and I say we as, as, as a culture maybe or even as the church, why do we have such an infatuation with theologians, scholars? We'll quote them. We'll rely on them. We'll go to their reference material. Um, and man, well, if Piper said it, man, if, if R.C. Sproul said it, if, if um, I don't know, whoever else... It, Alexandrianism affects modern Christianity more than I think you and I realize. Okay, you will never hear me say, well, the scholars say, da, 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 da. You, just, you won't hear me say that unless I'm telling you that they're wrong because God says something different. Because scholars came out of that school in Alexandria, Egypt, and they merged Greek philosophy and Christianity, trying to find a way to mix it together, and it just doesn't mix. And, and, and if, if you were, didn't catch last week's message about Alexandria and Egypt and all that, and how God feels about that, man, you got to catch that, because he's very clear in his word. And I think you'll understand why we ought to be against it, too. And that's why psychology can be so dangerous. And that's why Christian psychology is even more dangerous. It's the same stuff that they were doing with Philo. Taking the wisdom of the world and blending it with Christianity and making it better than the word of God. And, and, and some, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not knocking the field or anyone who goes there, I'm just saying, uh, some therapists or psychologists can slap Christian in front of it and, and we think that we're getting the word of God and we're getting the best help possible. Where was that person trained? What do they believe about the Bible? Does that stuff even matter to us? But because they're scholars and because they have degrees and, and again, fancy letters behind their names, well, man, we, we, we trust them. They put the hours in. They put the years in. They've got the degrees. These are some of the key ways that as you make your way through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that Satan is how he gets a synagogue, by the way. It's how he gets a seat in that synagogue. And then he has the freedom to sit on it and then propagate from it false doctrine. 
And all through the 400 years when God was silent, Satan was setting the stage militarily, politically, philosophically, and intellectually to come against the first coming of Christ and the establishment of his church. Again, the pattern. And all the same pieces are there that we saw when Israel was in Egypt in Egyptian captivity and God was working to bring them into a land uh, that he promised them. It's all the same pieces that Satan's, again, rising up Gentile nations for this period of 400 years. And so once you see those patterns begin to, to emerge and to replicate, your antennas ought to go up. And you ought to start looking to see if there's another pattern like this. And you can't help but notice, and I'm, I'm going to start landing it here. You can't help but notice that there's another 400 years between two very significant events. And the second of those two events is, of course, the event of all events that God's been looking for ever since the beginning of time. Uh, that second coming of his son, Jesus Christ, when he will rule and reign on, on this planet. And we've seen that according to the patterns that God has laid out for us. Uh, this is part of the reason why we spent so much time looking at those patterns in Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2 and seeing how God has laid that out with the, 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 the uh, Second Peter 3.8, a days is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day and all that stuff. And we see that that, that that event is going to be somewhere approximately pretty flipping close to the second millennium. Okay? From, a, from, from a, the, the standard of God's word, somewhere in, in the 2000s, in that second millennium. And interestingly enough, if you back up about 400 years or so to around the 1600s, after years and years and years of the word of God being suppressed, and taken out of the common man's hand so that he couldn't get it, having to rely on the scholars and the elites and the priests and the EIEIOs. He took the preserved word of God in that 1600 time frame. He took it and as it came down through the centuries, he put it into their language, into an English speaking people's language and through that language and the invention of the printing press uh, that that group of people that we know if you look back at your list that that philadelphian church age and that group of people man they took that book and they went to the ends of the earth with it they evangelized every corner of the globe with it and that's why no matter where you travel in this world today you're going to find people who are speaking the english language you go to every major airport in the world, and what you'll find is that on their signs, they'll have their language, and then right next to it or right under it, it's in English. Why is that? It's not because America is the financial capital of the world or anything like that. The reason is because missionaries in that time frame, man, they took their English-speaking Bible, and they went, and they trained and they evangelized, and they discipled, and they won people to Christ. And now if you go into other countries, and you have different people from different countries in that one place, do you know what language they're speaking, that common language? It's English. You, you, you get a Russian businessman and a Chinese businessman. They're not both speaking Chinese or Russian. They're speaking English. 
That happened because English missionaries were taking this book that you're holding in your hands tonight all over the globe. Okay, so don't think for a minute that Satan doesn't know what event is on the horizon, okay? He saw what happened in the 1600s, and don't think he doesn't know that the day of the Lord is at hand. And don't think that he's going to just sit idly by between the 1600s or so and, and when the, the day of the Lord happens. And, and don't think he's just going to sit there, kick back, and, and drink a margarita and, and coconut bars on the beach while, while God just works his plan. He's going to do the same thing he's been doing all through history. And what do you think, that bug, and what do you think he's going to use? Huh? Gentile nations. And he's wanted to get Gentile nations to come against the second coming of Christ. All those Gentile nations that are being put together, they're just like they, just like they were when they were waiting for Israel to come out of that promised land that first time. And you know how Satan worked and he got all those nations, by the way? He got them you know, back in Joshua and in the Old Testament. You know how we, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, all that stuff? It's all the same thing, except now they're not called the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the, all those ites. They're in what we call now the Middle East. Those Gentile nations that we talked about just a minute ago from Daniel 2 and, and Daniel 7, they didn't go anywhere. Satan's been working through those same nations. Uh, that, that Babylonian empire, that head of gold that I told you about, we call that Iraq. The, uh, the, the Medo-Persian empire that I told you about, which was the breasts and the, the arms of silver, we call that Iran. The belly and thighs of, of brass, that Grecian empire, it's modern-day Syria. And those legs of iron, that Roman empire, is the modern-day, what was formerly known as the European Common Market, later to be called the European Economic Community, eventually to be called the European Union. And what was physical, and we'll see this way down the road, but what was physically the Roman influence will be the spiritual Roman influence. And listen, the point is, and we're going to put a bow on it, the pattern is consistent, y'all. It's all the same. Except this time, instead of Joshua leading the battle against Satan's Gentile nations... It's the Lord Jesus Christ leading us into the battle. And by the way, that Hebrew name Joshua, Acts 7.45, speaking of Joshua, he calls him Jesus. And so listen, it's with this understanding that we will enter into church history in a couple weeks knowing what to look for. We won't call Christian what is really the work of Satan. We will enter into church history in two weeks with our antennas up, our eyes open, Lord willing, and our Bibles in hand. Father, I pray, Lord, that God, as we've unpacked a lot of this tonight, Lord, I trust that you can and do have your will and your way despite me. God, anything that I do, have done, say, don't say, 
God, that, that, that misses the mark, Lord. God, thank you that you are faithful enough to have your word preached and hopefully believed on by your people despite a man whose best righteousness is his filthy rags in in himself. So Lord, I I pray, God, that that, that we would be a people, Lord, that would desire to be arrested to your word, that we would not leave your word come hell or high waters. God, that we would be so given to to you and, and to your word uh, Lord, in the time that we spend in it, to, to, to the time that we apply in our lives, to, to the amount of time that, that it resonates in our minds throughout the day. God, that we can discern, not just in this study of church history, but even now, where we are today in 2020, that we can discern and not call Christian what is really the work of Satan. God, I feel like we're on such thin ice on these days. And it's not going to get better at all until you come back and get the glory that is due your name. And you right, you make right every wrong. And you will bring uh, justice, vengeance, restitution. So God, may, may we live to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, ladies and gents. See-